Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome once again to the Swift Half with Snowden, with me, Christopher Snowden, from the Institute of Economic Affairs. If you've seen the show before, you know it's pretty straightforward. It's a half-hour chat with somebody who I think you will find interesting. And I'm very pleased indeed to say that this week's guest is none other than Johan Norberg. He's the author of several books, all of which are pretty optimistic, including In Defense of Global Capitalism from way back in, in 2001, Progress at, in 2016, and his most recent book is called Open. Um, he's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Johan, it's great to have you on. This is generally quite a pessimistic show just because of the presenter. Um, so I'm hoping you can fill me with some hope and optimism. I'll try to cheer you up. So the, 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 the In Defense of Global Capitalism, which I picked up from Timbro about 10 years ago when I was in, in, in Stockholm, this is a very invigorating book. Um, and you're very much of the kind of the Stephen Pinker, Matt Ridley school of emphasizing the positives and, and seeing how far we've come as a society. I would argue perhaps that this book, I say it came out in 2001, presumably came out, you wrote it just before 9-11, I guess. Um, which some people would say was the high watermark of optimism and everything's been going downhill since then. And of course, then we had the financial crisis a few years later, we've had COVID, now we've got war in Europe. Are you still as optimistic as you were as a young man when you wrote this book? Oh, I am. Because if you look at what happened since I wrote that book, and as you say, yes, when it comes to the cultural atmosphere, perhaps some sort of high tide for, for optimism. But since then, it's actually gotten much better. Since then, 152,000 people have been lifted out of extreme poverty every day. And when you look at indicators like child mortality, illiteracy, chronic undernourishment, the share of people suffering from those conditions have been halved since then. Uh, despite all the horrors, the wars, the pandemics, the financial crisis, there is something in our scientific and technological ingenuity in, in open societies that keep on producing things under pressure. And you, of course, put this down mainly to capitalism, basically, do you? I put it down to the three I's, the, um, the freedom to explore strange new things, uh, the freedom to experiment with new business models and, uh, and uh, technologies, and the freedom to exchange it all on markets and trade. And capitalism is an incredibly important part of that. But generally, everything that makes us open to surprises, open to new insights, new discoveries, new technologies from strange new places or strange new people, uh, that's, that's about it. So I was involved in a little online debate with my colleague Alexander Hammond um, a couple of months ago, in fact, uh, a few weeks before war broke out in Europe, and he was taking a very uh, optimistic approach. Uh, the, the argument was basically, are classical liberals going to be winning in the 2020s? And I took a much less optimistic approach to it, partly because there's very few classical liberals in the world, um, but also because there's still you know huge problems and oh yeah i mean a lot of a lot of the, the progress has been from countries like india and china going a bit more capitalist they're still pretty um you know authoritarian bureaucratic and, and uh, in the case of china undemocratic russia of course has got worse since 2001 i think most people would would say there's a lot of people living in these countries so a lot of the progress actually has happened in uh, india and china and africa 
uh, which is great, of course, but from a purely European perspective, and I tend to be a bit you know, absorbed, really, not just in Europe, but in, in Britain, personally, I do look around the world to some extent, but not as much as you do. doesn't feel to me in the Western world things are looking particularly good. We've had a, a huge natural problems with covid people can't do anything about that we can argue about the best way to approach it but the result has been a vast amount of money printing and and, and, and borrowing on top of a huge amount of money printing and borrowing that's been going on ever since 2008 with the financial crisis i'm not seeing uh, much sign of classical liberalism um i'm not seeing much em embracing of free markets and i saw something in the economist uh, just last week showing that um, the number of genuine democracies is going down. The number of sort of aut autocratic societies is is going up. So my fear is that you know everything comes to an end basically. And there would have been people in the fourth century AD talking about what a wonderful thing the Roman Empire has been. And if you look at the progress that's been made over the centuries, it's been terrific. And there's no reason to think that's ever going to end. But things do end. Um, where where am I? Where's my analysis wrong there? Why why should I be so confident that free markets and technology is going to continue to improve life rather than we go back to the dark ages? Yeah. Well, yes, I read your debate with Alexander Hammond, and I'm sure it doesn't surprise you that I'm Team Alexander on this point. Uh, but I am a qualified optimist, not necessarily a Panglossian. I think that, uh, and my optimism does not uh, discount the risks of uh, greater turbulence, more authoritarianism, and war and financial crisis in the future. So perhaps it doesn't cheer you up, my, my sort of optimism. Uh, it's about something else. It's about as, as long as we're free to adapt to the terrible problems that we're facing, we're bound to come up with great new solutions. And some of them might even be so incredibly important that they actually contribute more benefits than the problems in themselves contributed terror in our lives. So just one example with the pandemic, which was awful in every way. But I think that 20 years from now, we'll say that the greatest effect of the pandemic was that it sped up the the introduction of mRNA technologies around the world. We always thought that there was something to it, this idea of basically turning ourselves into drug manufacturers. Uh, but, you know, bureaucratic um, regulators were opposed to it and there wasn't much funding in it. But then suddenly, because of this crisis, it sort of forced people to, um, you know, the prospect of being hanged in the morning focuses the mind tremendously, as Samuel Johnson added. Uh, and there was something about mRNA vaccines. Then they said, OK, let's try it out. And now we're seeing this scramble for laboratories and for skilled personnel everywhere, because if we can do it with COVID, we might be able to do the same thing with any other kind of virus, but also against cancers, against rare genetic disorders, against uh, any kind of autoimmune disease. So it might be that this one discovery will save more lives every year than the pandemic killed in total. I hope. We'll, we'll see. But that's my basic sense of optimism. It's not that everything will be great. It's not that we will avoid problems in the future. It's that as long as we have fairly open societies and open markets, people will begin to immediately 
improvise and innovate and come up with something great that will surprise us all. Well, in terms of economic growth, specifically in kind of the Western world, do you feel that governments on balance are going in the right direction or the wrong direction? Is the European Union going in the right direction from, from our perspective, uh, America, Britain? I think we're going in the wrong direction. And you, you described it earlier. We've had this uh, orgy of uh, spending and of printing presses going wild. Uh, central banks and uh, ministers of um, uh, finance have probably printed and increased uh, liquidity on our markets to the equivalent of one American economy over the past two and a half years. That's shocking and it's bound to result in massive inflation and um, asset inflation which is about to pop perhaps it's already started uh, there are great mistakes that have been done and there will be some reckoning i'm sure in a way what i'm seeing now is not the it's not the end of the roman empire it's more like the 1970s again they've ran into difficulties with their old problems and they tried to deal with it with more spending more um, rationing when it comes to energy perhaps around the corner uh, more regulation and more inflation but you know what happened after the 70s the 1980s <laughs> it might just be that people are discovering that look this is not working in the long run we can't spend ourselves out of this uh, when interest rates begin to increase we will have to do something about public spending and then we will have to look for more innovative uh, solutions and opening up markets i i would assume um, of course, there's always the risk that uh, after the 70s comes a, an even bigger 70s and right, exactly. bigger crisis. Uh, but, uh, but I do see some signs that um, people are realizing that uh, we might have to look somewhere else for solutions. Now, Naomi Klein would probably call that disaster capitalism. Um, and that's something I wanted to ask you about, actually, because yeah. you're know, reading this book, it, 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 it takes me back to to the noughties when Naomi Klein was very popular and the big issues there were kind of complaining about the, the World Trade Organization and globalization. And um, you wrote the definitive critique of her book, The Shock Doctrine, which I just think is one of the most incredible and really most dishonest books I think I've ever come across. And, uh, and, I came and you're referring to Naomi Klein's book and not my critique, right? The, the, yes, yes, the, yes, the shock doctrine. <laughs> Sorry, make that very clear. Um, the shock doctrine, if anybody hasn't read it, I'm sure lots of people haven't read it. Um, the, the gist of it is that the Chicago boys, Milton Friedman and free market economists, either engineer or ruthlessly exploit various wars and, and, and natural disasters in order to bring in what are, she says, extremely unpopular and unsuccessful free market measures. And I mean, she begins the book by basically saying that Milton Friedman supported the Iraq war, which she explicitly didn't. She then goes on to, in some way, claim that the Falklands war must have been started by Britain, because otherwise uh, the hypothesis doesn't make any sense. Just give a few, I mean, I know it's a few years ago since you kind of debated her on, on this point and wrote that critique, but uh, just <laughs> refresh my memory on, on how awful that book is. <laughs> I'm glad you bring this up because it is absolutely shocking. And, you know, Milton Friedman always said that never challenge your opponent's motives or intellectual dishonesty, always go for the arguments. But 
I would be willing to make an exception when it comes to Naomi Klein, because that book is really intellectually dishonest. And she really takes quotes out of context when she doesn't fake them entirely and, and make up timelines to make it suit herself. Uh, so it's either that or she has researchers who just tricked her, basically. Um, her argument, her thesis is that free markets, classical liberalism is so incredibly popular that we can only manage to ram it down people's throats through deceit and dishonesty and by conjuring up crises so that people are shocked and disoriented and then we can sort of begin to liberalize when people are looking elsewhere. Um, and to do that, well, the first thing she does is uh, she um, quotes Milton Friedman when he says that um, real change often happens after a crisis. But of course, she leaves out the entire context where he explains that the crisis is the failure of the old model. When you've tried the planned economy in the Soviet Union and it fails, well, then there's room for change. And uh, then our task, uh, the, the task of, of classical liberals, is to keep other options open and explain why there is another alternative out there and argue in favor of it in, in, in plain daylight uh, rather than trying to trick people to it. It's not that he's trying to sort of conjure up war and, and disaster to make it happen. And, um, and then, of course, her examples are, are pretty wild. Um, for example, uh, using the example of Tiananmen Square in, in, in China as, as trying to prove that this is what made it possible for them to liberalize market. Whereas when you look at uh, the timeline, the, the reforms, of course, started uh, more than 10 years before with Deng Xiaoping. And then after Tiananmen Square, there was this backlash from the more authoritarian guard and the old Maoist faction in the Communist Party who tried to dismantle all the reforms because they thought that the protests show that, look, this is what happens when we decentralize and westernize. We'll see chaos in the streets. And now we need, well, a shock doctrine. We really need to put people in prison and labor camps. Uh, and it was only saved because Deng Xiaoping then took his case to um, to local um, constituencies with his great southern journey uh, and then managed to revive it a couple of years later. So that happens again and again in her book. And it cannot be by mistake. There's some deceit going on. Yeah. And then a few years later, she came up with a book called This Changes Everything, which was all about how the climate crisis means that we must adopt socialist policies worldwide. So she's doing exactly what she's yes. accusing other people are doing, is finding a crisis, exploiting it, and then introducing uh, unpopular economic ideas on the exactly. back of it. Yeah, she doesn't waste a good crisis. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, let's fast forward onto your most recent book, which I haven't read yet, which is called Open. Can you give us a, the, the rundown what the argument is in that one? Yeah, the, it's, it's basically a... Um, a story about the um, distinction between open and closed in history and in our own minds, because I think this is our double nature and it's uh, different strategies that works in different occasions. Openness when we have room for positive sum games, market exchange, cultural exchange, innovation, um, any kind of cooperation, but also closed strategies when we're in a zero sum game and we are being attacked. And where does this come from historically and how has this uh, managed to um, revive or, or destroy civilizations? Because one of my, my takes is that um, 
all of history's great civilizations, the one that we, the ones that we call golden ages, um, Athens, Roman Empire, Song China, um, the, the Dutch uh, Republic, um, even Britain, um, they managed to be golden eras because they were relatively open uh, compared to others. They were at the crossroads between civilizations, so they could use make use of more brains and more skills, more ideas from different places, and therefore also being more open to strange surprises from, from various places. Even someone like Genghis Khan, who really wasn't a uh, soft, nice, uh, free market liberal or anything like that, probably the most brutal warlord of all, all history. The reason why he was so successful at it was that within the empire, he, has, he established um, relatively free trade, religious freedom, so that any skilled uh, local uh, uh, horse boy could make it all the way in his armies if he was successful. It really established a certain degree of meritocracy and picked up then the best ideas um, from, from the civilizations he conquered um, and, and people, unfortunately often slaves. Mm -hmm. You know, when Genghis Khan tried to invade uh, Europe with 150,000 men, only 50,000 of them were Mongols, and um, most of them came from other civilizations. Even the odd uh, escaped Englishman who had escaped Britain because of the religious repression in, in that time. Mm. So openness, basically, when you manage to establish that with rule of law, with open economies, that's what creates progress. That's my take. But often then, in, and often in times of crisis, we prefer the more closed strategy. We become worried about the world. We try to establish the status quo and we build barriers and tariffs against others and thereby also lose access to some of the best minds and uh, skills out there. And if um, in Britain, at least, we, we choose not to have another kind of 1980s and we decide to double down on the, on the 70s, where should I be looking to emigrate to? Where do you think are the 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 up and coming countries and continents of of the the next few decades? Well, you know, it is always risky uh, to mention something because mm. uh, it's not linear, really. But then, often times, even successful examples and places uh, run into. Um, some opposition and, and even revolts. Uh, there are successful stories around the world. You could go to Latin America, to Chile or Peru, to incredibly successful countries over the past two decades. However, in the re last year, both elected populist leftist uh, leaders want to dismantle that model. So it is risky. Uh, I, I, but generally, I'd go to small, insignificant, um, liberal, democratic places far away from where the action is, you know, in New Zealand, uh, out there, or Chile, uh, or perhaps even a Sweden, perhaps Taiwan, if they're not invaded. What about Africa? How do you see their prospects? In that blog post, that was, Africa is the, the, the one area. Alex, Alex Hammond is very um, interested in, in, in Africa, does a lot of work on that. And it seems to me, I don't know very much about it, but people have always said there's huge potential in Africa. And of course there is, and it's never really managed to fulfill that. But now that they do seem to be getting more involved with free trade and having free trade treaties co covering most of the continent, um, the technology is obviously improving, health is improving, medicine and so on. 
exists the moment now for at least some of those African countries to, to really have serious economic growth. That could definitely be the case. And, you know, it's, it's possible to succeed in Africa as well. Some of the fastest growing economies over the past 40 years are African ones. Botswana has grown faster over the past 40 years than China has. Uh, Mauritius uh, in 2019, I think, was declared a high income country because they have um, established rule of law and, and fairly free in open markets and secure property rights. So it works there as well. We've had rapid growth in former really troubled places like Uganda, Rwanda over the past um, decade or so. So it is possible. Uh, one of the major obstacles is that, uh, you know, other countries when they are, have lots of neighbors or are landlocked, um, the, their neighbors are their best partners because they have open borders and free trade with them. That's not, has not been the case in uh, Africa and with very uh, arbitrary borders, uh, it means that it's impossible to create a very large division of labor between countries. But that's where the uh, African Free Trade Union, if it really comes about and uh, could be incredibly interesting and that's why i understand why alexander hammond is so excited about it it hasn't been uh, come into existence yet really but it's being ratified in more places uh, everywhere and with some sort of stability then in the system of rules it might encourage lots of investment to go there as well especially if we have this kind of weird decoupling between western and chinese economies well that's africa should be the next place right. to put lots of labor intense uh, production for um, suppliers for our multinational companies yes i had the same thought in fact i had quite a an optimistic thought, thought yesterday believe it or not uh, with <laughs> relate with regards to russia and china which are the two countries that probably most people are um, most concerned about these days um which was, and the chances of this happening are probably minute, but just the thought that it could happen, I found was quite inspiring. It is possible that in the next few years, potentially, you could have regime change in China and Russia. It's not very likely, but with the, the sanctions against Russia, Russia becoming a, a pariah, there are clearly incentives to get rid of the current administration. And China, this is probably even less likely, but the China's back into lockdown, or large parts of it are back in lockdown. Shanghai is now in lockdown. I suspect Beijing will be in lockdown the next um, couple of weeks. These lockdowns are not going to work against Omicron. The Chinese Communist Party has really bet the farm on maintaining zero COVID or something very close to it. They're still not using decent Western vaccines. Um, and they could end up quite soon with the kind of COVID death rates we've been seeing in Hong Kong, which are absolutely off the scale compared to any country during the entire pandemic. It probably even compared to India, you know, the worst of it last year. And you never know, that could lead to some kind of political change. Now, I'm not saying that's very likely, but of course, change does happen. Revolutions do happen. Often the revolutions end badly, of course. You can't guarantee it's going to end up with a classical liberal um, majority. But imagine how good it would be if there was, you know, a sensible government in, in Russia a more liberal government in China, it could happen. And if that happens, the kind of geopolitical concerns of the world kind of disappear almost. That's right. I uh, Congratulations on your optimistic thought. <laughs> now let's hang on to it. I think I might have while. had a couple of drinks at the time. <laughs> I, uh, think about it. But I think there's something to that. You know, Xi Jinping was going to run for his sort of unlimited um, stay in power later this year in China on, on three things. His COVID strategy, 
the economy and his great partnership with uh, Vladimir Putin and <laughs> some of the other uh, authoritarians out there. And now it's really come back to um, hurt him. Um, the COVID strategy, as you mentioned, the economy is not in a good shape. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it's terrible in so many ways. And if we have a problem with uh, getting something from our investments, then, then China is much, much worse. And he's managed to destroy almost single-handedly the, the hoped for next generation of Chinese multinational tech businesses uh, recently. And it's a shrinking work, working population, soon a shrinking population as well. And to that comes Russia and, and Putin. Uh, now it doesn't seem like a successful bet to be best friend forever with, with him. So I'm, I'm, I don't know um, the, the chances that there will be some sort of coup, but you know, I'm pretty sure that there are groups within the Communist Party saying, this guy in charge doesn't really make us great again. And definitely the same thing is going on in, in Russia as well. Then again, I mean, the Castros managed to um, destroy Cuba and, and stay in power uh, for, for uh, half a century. Um, so it's not unfortunately necessarily the case that it's enough to ruin everything and uh, make yourself incredibly unpopular to, uh, to get a, uh, some sort of coup or revolution. But uh, the chance is definitely there. Um, what I don't know if you, how much you you studied this because I guess it was twenty years ago or so. But um, the the way that Russia sort of adopted capitalism in the nineteen nineties, I think I suppose Naomi Klein would say this was another example of the Chicago boys going in and wrecking things. But I think possibly there was an element of truth in in that, wasn't? There? I don't know that much about it. But how 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 did that transformation yeah. from communism to capitalism go so badly? Yeah, that's an, something that people really should look more into and read up on uh, now, because I think that's part of the problem. First of all, what you should do is compare it to other places that really implemented a shock therapy, as it was said, uh, like the Baltic countries, uh, like Poland and, and others who have done remarkably well and are now close to Western European living standards. Um, in Russia, this did not succeed. And one of the problem is that they, they did privatization, but they did privatization in an incredibly corrupt way without establishing rule of law and open markets with free trade first, which means that they basically, especially this old, uh, you know, loans for share scheme that they had, which was basically a way of handing resource monopolies to a few oligarchs in exchange for loans immediately to, to Russia and specifically to Boris Yeltsin's re-election campaign. It was really a way of keeping him, him in power. Made it possible for a few preferred uh, privileged oligarchs to make a tons of money by establishing not free markets, but uh, really government protected monopolies. And they're still there. They've just uh, changed a couple of, of the faces of people to, to guys whom, whom Putin prefer more. So it tells you something. And I, I remember that um, Milton Friedman wrote and talked about this quite a lot, because the first thing he said about Soviet Russia was that, okay, I've got three pieces of advice for you. And that's privatize, privatize, and privatize, because you've just got to create a new group of sort of decentralized economic forces. Uh, a couple of years later, he said, uh, 
those were three mistakes <laughs> on my part. Um, or possibly we would should have had privatized, but as the third uh, section. First, we should have worked harder to establish, or they should have, uh, rule of law and open and deregulated product markets, which made it possible for people to only get those companies if they were productive, if they competed freely in the in the open market. And that did not succeed. And I guess one problem was that the only people in Russia at the time who had some experience with capitalism were crooks, <laughs> because it wasn't allowed to, unlike some of the other communist states who had sort of had smaller markets uh, that were established in certain places, like Poland with agriculture and, and so on. In, in the Soviet Union, everything was centrally planned. And you, if you wanted to do some sort of um, capitalist acts between consenting adults, you'd had to do it in the informal market. So only between crooks. So they had a, uh, an advantage when they started to privatize, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's easy to forget that Russia has really never known any kind of real freedom or, or democracy. I suppose it was a, a few years in the 90s where they had some vague semblance of it but uh yeah the idea that you could just go in and and, and privatize anything without having the underpinning institutions was was as you say a big mistake and we're partially paying for that today yeah and our time is nearly up i'm afraid it's been fascinating talking to you we've covered a lot of ground i've got so many other things i'd like to talk to you about um thank you for watching at home go out and get yourself one of um Johan's books if you want cheering up um and i'll see you or you rather you'll see me in a couple of weeks time um thank you in particular to all our generous donors at the ia if you'd like to become one of them um go to ia.org.uk slash donate or indeed if you want to fund our digital work like this you can go to the patreon.com slash ia london uh take care of yourself hope you have a good couple of weeks and we'll see you again thank you